they said to me there is a song it was like number one in the country everywhere you go you hear this greek song Hoshi Hoshi. If I remind listeners, if they are from that time of 60s, they would remember this song. So what they did, they set the cameras and then they said, we're going to put the record on. You will, as if that you are singing the song. You look like Greek, so you will be singing the song. No prior arrangements. And I can say there's some people until now, all over, whether America, whether here, Canada, wherever they are, from that time, they think I was a person who really did sing this song, <laughs> Hoshi Hoshi. Linguist, musician, athlete, hippie. These are a few adjectives that have been used by those who know him to describe today's guest. Hi, dear listeners. Shamana Mohebe is Nora. I'm so excited and honoured to bring you the Assyrian podcast's first episode from across the pond in London, England. In this maiden episode, I talk with Emmanuel Samano, who also happens to be my father. My father was born and raised in Kirkuk, Iraq, and later moved to Baghdad in the late 1960s, where he worked for the Iraqi Media Corporation as an actor on the radio and the screen. But unfortunately, even there, people were not immune from the pressures posed by the worsening political climate. After the Ba'ath Party attempted to recruit him for the third time, he knew it was time to make a choice. Join them, or leave the country. He left Iraq in the early 1970s, at a time when the Ba'ath Party was tightening its grip on the country, and moved to the UK, in search of a different future. We'll gain some insight into the life of a man who speaks five languages, has lived in three different countries, and has escaped the Iraqi regime more than once. He has played drums in a band, played Antonio in Shakespeare's The Merchant of Venice, and sung in Greek on Iraqi national television. Before we get started, I want to take this opportunity to ask you to rate and review the Assyrian podcast on whichever platform you're listening. And if you love it as much as we do, please do let your friends and family know about it too. Support for this week's episode of the Assyrian podcast is brought to you by Tony Caligarakis and the Injury Lawyers of Illinois and New York. If you know anyone that has been in a serious accident, please reach out to Tony Caligarakis. Tony has been recognised as a top 40 lawyer and a rising star by Super Lawyers Publication and has obtained multiple multi-million dollar awards. Tony can be reached at injuryrights.com or 847-982-9516. Without further ado, here's Emmanuel Samano. Today on the Assyrian podcast, my guest is Emmanuel Samano. Welcome, Emmanuel. Thank you. So let's go back to the beginning and talk a little bit about your childhood and your family and where you grew up. I was born in Kirkuk, Iraq. My father was from Diari in Hakari and my mother was Bilweta. Both areas are in Turkey. I started my primary school in Kirkuk. And it was, it happened that the school that I started, it was a mixed school, boys and girls. And didn't take long. Then we found out that the school 
changed to stay girls' school and we were moved to boys' school. And in this school, the experience that I had, I heard other languages spoken in the school. So the, the people start speaking Kurdish, Turkish, Arabic, and myself with my friend was speaking Assyrian. So the language part of it, it became very interesting to me. And I thought this is a good opportunity to start learning language. And I did from early age. So was that something that all your friends were interested in as well? Not really, no. A lot of them, uh, they didn't like it because they were saying like Turkmen, they don't want to speak or Kurdish because they didn't like them. They didn't like them. They were not sort of a good communication, good relationship between us, especially the Turkmen. But I thought this would be good opportunity for me to learn and to become sort of like somebody that would know the language and then start understanding what goes on. So it wasn't everyone liked to learn the language, but I did. I, I liked it and I thought this is very interesting. I would like to learn language. So I picked it up very quickly, the language. Yes. So what's your earliest memory living in, in Kirkuk? One thing I remember, they used to give us free meal and I used to like to drink a jug, full jug of milk. I used to drink it. <laughs> yes, that's one thing from childhood, something that I did like. Were you allowed to drink a whole jug of milk or was that just you? <laughs> no, that was sort of like last thing they have given to everyone. And they used to say there is milk left, whoever wants to drink and all that. So uh, one thing, I instead of water, I used to drink milk. That was something funny, but I remember it. And then we used to play in the school, some the, a good memory used to play together, but the, the people we played together mainly used to be Assyrian in the school. So when you were growing up, what were your hobbies? What were the things that you enjoyed doing? Well, two things was, one of them was I used to cycle to the school backwards forwards. We liked our bicycles and we used to polish them and we used to go a few, few friends together. And then the acting was something that I found that I liked it. I always liked the poems, even in Arabic. I really enjoyed them. And uh, I used to try to write as well. And then it happened that the teacher chose a play, which was for the Shakespeare Merchant of Venice. Each one was given a role. And when it came to me, he said, you will suit for Antonio. Because I always liked the drama. When the Shylock is asking to take a one pound of flesh, of the body of Antonio. I was even in tears. I remember until now that moment, that part, I could feel the drama on the stage. Wow. So in your teenagers, tell us a little bit about that. Well, then it happened that we moved on to another town which was called New Kirkuk. Apparently my dad, my father worked for the oil company and these houses in New Kirk were built by the company and they used to give them to their employees. And this new town was uh, something new to us with the pavements, with the small parks and with the swings, seesaws, so a football ground. And then I found that most people that living in that town, over 90% were Assyrians, all the neighbors, 
anywhere you go there, there were Assyrians. So we felt very much sort of a close community, nobody else but us Assyrians. So it was a good thing. So how old were you when you when you moved there? I would say I was somewhere around 12 to 13 years old. So did you have like a Syrian community hall or a church? Where did everyone gather? We used to meet in a church because they had a, a, there's a big church which still exists there, Marguerges, in Almas area. So we used to uh, go backwards forwards by buses because it was a bit far from Arafah or the new Kirkuk or Assyrian school. In Assyrian school, there was uh, activities they used to do. So Arafah is where you lived? Yeah, that's right, yes. And then we start there, obviously, we had football ground, we start playing football. And the, the good thing I remember at evenings is to walk groups, people like mixed people walking groups and saying hello to each other. So to come to know other people living in the town, it was a, a very good picture, very nice. Uh, bring us the memory of so close community together. So you said at that time there was just a church there. So was there afterwards any Assyrian community halls built or anything like that? Well, we stayed for a few years in uh, New Kirkuk, Arafah, and then we moved on to an area called Almas, still there now. Houses were built for the staff of the oil company which is Iraqi oil company. Most neighborhood were again Assyrians. And then soon that there was established the Assyrian club, where mainly was built by the volunteers. Which I did share in it as well. It was a big club and had many activities in the club. It was to do with the sports, a lot to do with the sports. So you had volleyball, you had football, cycling, table tennis, and then had drama acting department as well. So there was a lot, and it was mixed, girls and boys. And then we used to have every weekend over there, which is Thursday night and Friday, we used to have bingo. And there was a lot of people meeting, and we, had, we used to have barbecues, and all that it was very, very, very enjoyable, good fun. So even back then, Assyrians liked playing bingo. That's right, yes. <laughs> oh, so yes. that hasn't changed then. No. So you mentioned you had drama. What kind of plays did you put on there? I remember one guy who passed away. His name was Khoshaba Anayel. I remember he one who picked up a play and he wrote, took a long time. And we acted on the stage and we were very lucky and became very successful and we saw ourselves on the national newspaper which was printed in Baghdad. The highlight of having the Assyrian club and getting involved in so many activities, one of them was when the Assyrian club was playing the Armenian club which was called Homatman and then the spectators was so noisy and it was something I would say like talk of the town, whatever results will come like the next day, everybody's talking in the town. Wow. So it was good fun and we used to look forward playing. What sport was that? 
basketball. Oh, right. Wow. Okay. There's another thing that I have to mention. This is really highlight. We made a picnic in Kirkuk. We went to Dokan Dam, which is up north. It's about two hours drive from Kirkuk or more than that. And there was over 100 cars and buses. And we did get involved in this to look after the convoy to see if there's any breakdown or anything, any problem with it. So the it was a very, very long queue of our picnic. This is one of the most picturesque place where we went to picnic because it was up the hill, then sort of like mountain, and there was a lake next to us. So people with the groups, they met each one, like 10, 15 people together and doing barbecue, dancing chigya, playing daulo zurna. So it was something, I would say there's a lot of people that from that town, who the ones that they still survived, they would remember this picnic. It was done one of the best. And I, if I remember, that was the only biggest picnic that was made wow. for the whole community. Yeah. So you mentioned Khigga. What was your favorite dance? Well, it was Shekhani and I used to love that to be Risht Khigga. Right. Uh, I always enjoyed it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so at that time, you mentioned about the oil company. Was there a lot of British and American influences in Iraq? Oh, yes, definitely, because the cars were mainly American, but then we had, obviously, British cars as well because of the oil company, which was Iraq Petroleum Company. Over, I would say, 50% was English influence in the town, the fashion, the songs. We used to hear them, you know, in our houses that always you'll, you'll have the sort of, of records. And then there was another thing that my father used to have a weekly newspaper, which is Daily Mirror, and the stationery used to keep it for him, directly coming from London, and used to come in his name. So he used to read the news of what was going on in England at the time. So I came to know, and he used to use, I remember this old radio, he used to put it in the living room or at the time is always reception all the time that not everybody uses it all the time and then we had this radio and he was always i remember early morning the bbc world service which the music still goes on until now and my dad taught himself english language from the radio he used to listen a lot and he taught himself typing and reading then reading the newspaper Wow. You mentioned about the records and things like that that came from Western society. So do you remember any of the music? Well, I remember very good at my time when we were growing up. It was the twist and then rock and roll, which was very, very interesting. And seeing that on the on double bass and sort of like bringing the double bass on the ground and playing it as few names that I remember. So that was really had a lot of influence because of that music and then the haircut and then the jeans. So that was the influence was coming to the to us. You know, we were getting involved with that one. So yes, it was very, very lively time. And then the, the group started playing even we had a Syrian guy's playing, and I remember one of the names as well. It was Cliff Richard, 
and their song was O Carol. <laughs> <laughs> I remember it. They used to, every wedding or party, they used to sing this song. I remember O Carol. Yes. So were you in, I know back then there were a lot of Assyrians in bands and things like that. Were you ever in any bands? Yeah, I was uh, uh, involved in Assyrian band as playing drums, but I didn't take it very serious because I was involved a lot in sports. I was in football, I was playing for a team, then I was using my bicycle, then play table tennis that I became number one guy in schools. They asked us to travel to other cities and to compete with other cities. So yes, I was involved in, in drama as well. So I was sort of, I had other interests. So you didn't really focus on practicing then? The Not drums. really, no, no. It's more of a fun, okay. uh, other fun. So then after your teenage years, after high school, what, what did you start doing after well, then? As my dad, when he left the oil company, became a contractor to work for oil company. You had a tanker used to respray roads where they used to dig for oil and he had cars to rent them for the company. So I had an office as well, so I used to work with him. I used to go with him and I learned from very early age driving car. If I remember, probably I was around 12 years or less, I start, he started asking me to drive, which was a lorry. Uh, I remember, yeah, my sister, Nahren, was my mum, myself, because it was big lorry at the time, and my dad. And I start, at the time he said to me, come and drive. And so, we were in an area, I I can recall the area, it was called Shorawa in Kirkuk, which was this one of the oil fields over there. Afterwards, I, I always liked and start from early age, start driving car and then work with my dad. But afterwards, my dad was ill and then he passed away and then uh, the company that he had and it was closed. After that, I applied for the Baghdad television broadcasting. But through our playing football, I came to know one of the guys in Spectator where we used to have sort of half time. We used to talk to each other and Spectators and one who was related to the president at the time because already that uh, became Republic and the monarchy was turned over. This guy who was related to the president, Ahmed Hassan Bakr, in fact, he was his nephew, and we became sort of like friends, talking with each other. When I applied, I saw this guy there in the station who was the head of the security. Then I was introduced to the general manager of the TV and the broadcasting. And then they started asking me to start working permanently to stay with them. What was your role there? The department's called programs. And one of the highlights of it, I remember it until now, Apart from acting, they said to me, there is a song, it was like number one in the country. Everywhere you go, you hear this Greek song, Hoshi Hoshi. If I remind listeners, if they are from that time of 60s, they would remember this song. So what they did, they set the cameras and then they said, we're going to put the record on. You will, as if that you are singing the song. You look like Greek, so you will be singing the song. No prior arrangements, and I can say there's some people until now, all over, whether America, whether here, Canada, wherever they are, from that time, they think I was 
a person who really did sing this song, Hoshi Hoshi, the good song. So you were actually just miming? Yeah, miming, yeah, exactly, yeah, yeah, it was good fun. So how long did you stay at the TV channel for? I think it was less than six months because the pressure was growing and these people, they were uh, people with responsibility and position in Bath Party. So at the time, obviously, the Bath Party was getting the grip of the country and they asked me to train with them for six months and then I will become an officer. I was asked three times and I saw that it's going to become difficult. My choice was two things. If I stay there, then that means I have to become an officer and then I have to go into, it's called a Republic Palace, which is called Qasr Jamhuri. Join the army and I knew that the second choice was to leave and go back to Kirkuk from Baghdad. Obviously, this was the station was in Baghdad. And then I start thinking through my family. I said, this is what's in my mind. Already we had connection with London because in the beginning of 60s, my brother studied here. So we used to have sending letters and Christmas presents and the rest of it. So we became to know on the suite, which was called Macintosh. I remember that, the big box. So this link, I said to my family, this is my choice, either I leave I have to leave the country or I have to go back to them and tell them because they asked me to bring my papers. Very serious. So I thought, don't go to Baghdad. Stay in Kirkuk and start thinking of leaving to London. So for our listeners that don't really know about the political climate at the time, you mentioned that even at the television station, the Ba'ath Party had a lot of control Oh, yes. Any position in the broadcasting, Baghdad television, was controlled by Ba'ath Party. In fact, one of the guys, the head who became the minister, is called Muhammad Saeed al-Sahaf. And he's the guy that we came to know each other. He was a minister at the time of 2003, until then. So, But I saw, even when there was sort of, sometimes at your break, you talk to people. So we used to talk to anyone. I came to know some people from other town cities, like from Basra. And one family was known as Khadayr, Salim Khadayr. And two sisters they were. They were very nice people. And then I was warned, he said, you better watch it, that talking to ladies here in the station. Obviously, I start feeling that this is so much that you are watched, whatever you're doing. Even you are in broadcasting, you are still watched by the bath parties. So there was a lot of pressure in there and from then started sort of thinking I better watch it and then try to make my way out and just leave. So this is why I didn't take long to stay there and didn't want to be there for permanent and uh, came to Kirkuk, planned to leave Iraq and that's what I did to London. So what year was it that you left? I left to London was 1971. So when you first got to London, what was your first impression of the city? When I left the airport, it was snowing. And when we were coming nearer the place where I would stay, I saw lots of piles of rubbish on the pavement and the snow on top of it. And I said, this is a surprise, what's going on? So when I asked one of the person, I said, what's going on here with these piles of the snow and the rubbish? Uh, they said to me that the dustmen are on strike. That surprised me 
I said, because this, I haven't seen something like this in Iraq to happen. Strike? What strike? You know, we don't know anything like that. That was one of the, it was shock. It was a shock for me. But then the lifestyle was like when it used to come like to weekend and I saw so quiet on Sunday. I used to live near the park, Hyde Park. Start going to the park, seeing the people, the system, children playing there. And there was a lake in the park. And it was so interesting. The traffic was going with no noise, no horns. It was something that suddenly I came to notice that this is totally different than what we got used to it in Iraq. So would you say, as they say in Assyrian, it was like there was order, there were things going on? Very much so, very much so. There was nothing sore to the eye. You don't like to see it. Everything that you will see, you look, the way that the trees being put in the park, the lines, the way that the people, the way they were walking together, the cycling, areas where they were cycling so i could see that there is signs for bicycles or there's signs no cycling here so there was something that as you mentioned a real reason (laughs) you know uh, the lifestyle was different and it was real like law and order everything you see that is with the system with the program everything that's been planned and worked out. It was, yes, I, from the word go, I liked the, the culture over here in London. So was there an Assyrian community here when you arrived in London? Mainly, we used to meet together in a hall of the St. Andrew's Church in Ealing. There was a committee was made, volunteers. They used to make sort of like tea and cakes and meeting together, meeting people. I remember we used to, the Assyrian society used to do New Year party where there was a lot of people used to meet. And at the time was something very interesting, which I must add to it uh, we used to have picnics and these picnics was done in the Kenwood Garden in Hampstead right so we used to meet hundreds of people there and we used to go and then dance together so there was a lot of good fun and joy together the community we didn't have a place the Assyrian Society of Great Britain the church was there my church and I remember was Kashayonan used to be the Kashat community after that we bought a place which is the Assyrian Society of Great Britain which is now same place known now as uh Bedshaw Taputa, right? Exactly right. Yeah. Yes, Bedshaw Taputa. So how big was the community here? Well, at the time we were really big. There was a lot of us that were involved. There was activities there and started sort of doing drama from the beginning. And it was very successful. If I remember, I think Sami Yako took the initiative and start acting and uh, obviously a lot of you you would know whoever is listening he would know Sami Yaku that was very much involved on the stage yes right so what was it that you were doing in London did you start working here yes I did I started working as a car mechanic I did that for six years and then the company was changing changing hands and becoming new management and I remember 
before leaving the company, I remember a friend of mine, Johanna Pira, who was in Australia. We used to work together. And then we went to um, in an area called Aldwych, Australian representative there, who we went there to fill a form. Another time we used, you pay only 10 pounds and then they will take you free. They will give you a job there in Australia and a place to stay. Yeah. And he signed the papers, everything. And for me, it's something like holding my hand. I could not sign the paper. Wow. And I said to, you know, she said, listen, we have come here. What do you mean that this is the time that we've got this time of interview and all that to fill the form sign? I said, well, I'm sorry. I used to call him John. Johanna. And I said, I'm sorry, John, I can't sign. I'm not going to sign. I have to think about it before I do. Because once you sign, then you prepare yourself to do. Johanna gone left. And I tell, until now, I haven't signed the paper to go to <laughs> Australia. So I'm not sorry, too. Wow, things might have been very different. Absolutely. <laughs> so then after I left that company, I came through friends. I came to know through a friend of mine, a Saudi guy. And uh, it was in 1977, I left to Saudi Arabia, to the capital, uh, Riyadh. Went there, stayed for two months. And this was a trial time. If I like it, then obviously we would stay for a longer time. And the attraction of it, why did I go? At the time, we used to earn somewhere around £25 a week. And we were offered there £350 a week and everything paid for you. So the offer that you cannot refuse. <laughs> yeah. But when we were there, we were faced with the lifestyle over there, 100 or 200 years behind. I saw it very difficult, the sand everywhere, the sun was the temperature, and it was February, around 50 degrees. And my skin, I remember my hand, I started saying, called like crocodile skin. <laughs> it was so... You know, the skin breaking and in no time, you know, we became so, so much affected by the sun and everywhere was sand and the town was small. So I didn't like it at all. But the only thing we had to stay there for two months for the trial. And then I was told when you, if you come back, you will sign for one year. That's the visa will be given. But obviously when I came to London, I thought, well, uh, the risk of health over there, so I started thinking about health, and I don't think I enjoyed to go back again. So what were you doing in Saudi Arabia? Were you working as a mechanic there as well? Not, not really. It was asked that to, because we, most uh, guys, they're gone as uh, English-speaking guys, helping and assisting in the construction, building houses. And these houses, they were mainly prefab. They used to come from London, and we used to have a crane, build this pre one of the first prefab houses we were building in in the capital so i used to communicate and with the other british companies the big names buying like cement from them so i used to go backwards forwards to them and you used to have guys working from those they are arabic speaking the laborers i used to go to the downtown to get the laborers in the pickup bring them back to where we are building these houses it was good fun at the beginning but then when we start coming up to this heat in the afternoon was unbearable i've never seen so much heat the best thing what we like there in that capital the airport where we see the air 
people, lots of people and aeroplanes flying backwards forwards. The town was not somebody that you would look forward to want to go there at the time. So after finishing my time, the two months left to London. So you came back to London. Did you carry on working as a mechanic? Or? No, I had the opportunity to work in interpreting while I found out there is a demand in the home office of interpreters. And I thought this is a good opportunity that I speak Turkoman, Kurdish, Arabic, and having the mother language Assyrian. So I was straight employed there as a freelance interpreter. I used to travel to terminals, to other ports as well, seaports. So I worked there for a few years. Until now, my, my name is written under Assyrian interpreters in the Home Office. So at any point during these years when you were in London and then you went to Saudi Arabia, you came back, at any point did you want to go back home? Was that your plan or did you want to stay in London? Well, I remember in 1974, I did go back to Kirkuk. I was always feeling homesick because as we were a big family, 11 of us, we used to have always a good company together. And then suddenly you are on your own. So it wasn't an easy thing. In 19, late 1974, must be in summer, my family came. Uh, I felt really uh, homesick when they left. So within a week, I planned and took holidays, came to Kirkuk, and I remember this incident. I knocked on the door, and my uncle came out, and he saw, when I saw his face, you know, he saw me, he fainted, because he was so surprised, couldn't believe to see me, uh, because they don't wanted me to see me back in Iraq, because things were getting really bad. Uh, with the regime, bath regime that we had there. I had a problem coming back because at the time in 1975, end of 74, 75, there was cut relationship between United Kingdom and Iraq. And I had permanent stay in London, in United Kingdom. So they removed United Kingdom and I was absolutely shocked. And I had a family was shocked and the friends. But thank God, at the time, my brother was in Dora and he had a friend who used to work for Iraqi Airlines. And he said, we will go and meet him. Let's find out. So I went to him, told him what's going on. He said, you don't have to worry. It's very easy. I couldn't believe what he was talking about. So the next day, when we met him, he said, you go tomorrow to the Iraqi Airlines. You will meet so-and-so guy and you will tell him that you want a ticket to fly to Beirut only, one way, to Beirut. And from there, when you get to Beirut, you will get yourself a ticket and then you fly to United Kingdom. So that was an experience i never forget. Many people came to airport, to Baghdad airport, to see me going to Beirut. And then when I arrived Beirut, from there I start my journey to London. So then you decided that you were going to stay in London permanently? Oh, definitely. I, so I had no more thinking about, obviously you will have that feeling of your family there, but things were getting from bad to worse in Iraq. I said, that's it. The family said, whatever you do, please don't you ever come to Iraq. Stay there as long as we know that you're alive. You get in touch with us, let us know. And that's all what we want to know. 
don't come back. So that's what I did. So did you ever go back to Iraq after that? Yes, I did. After the fall of Saddam Hussein, I remember about eight years ago, I did go to Iraq, I did go to Baghdad, and I went to North Iraq, to Erbil, Duhok, Simele. I wanted because I always was in my mind to go there as well. And I uh, remember that I was asked to go to Kirkuk, my own town to see where I used to live and all that but then I was told at the time there was a lot of things were going you know there was between Peshmerga fight and the Iraqi forces especially in Kirkuk so I said no I'm not going to take risk and I didn't go. So looking back would you have ever made the decision to stay in Iraq or are you glad that you chose to leave? Well, as you know, because the community we lived together, we were really close. And Kirkuk was a city, a town that very close community to do with the club, to do with the church, to do with the Syrian school. So we were a very strong community together. But I can say things went from bad to worse. So I think I'd done the right decision that I came to London. And I'm happy to say that that I never decided to go back again. We like to end our podcast with an interesting question for our guests. So if there's one thing you could go back and tell yourself when you were a young man, what would it be? It would be as to buy more properties as in real estate in London, because at the time the property was very cheap, and even cheaper than it was in Kirkuk. And the value of properties over here in London is gone very high. I would buy many or say 10 properties. <laughs> yes. So thank you, Manuel. Thank you, Dad, for this uh, interview. You're welcome. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please take a moment and share it on social media. We appreciate your support. Tune in next time for another guest and another great journey on the Assyrian Podcast.